Good morning, church family. It's a joy to be here this morning with you and to share from God's word. What an opportunity every weekend we get to gather on multiple campuses, multiple services to lift up the one name of Jesus Christ. We are in the middle of a series called Who We Are because it's possible that a person, a family, even a church can drift through life forgetting who they are. We could sort of put it on the back burner and forget who we are. This is such a critical topic because actually your identity determines your activity. Who you are determines what you do. Always it's your identity that comes first that determines your activity. If I've got a broken car, I'm not taking it to a surgeon, I'm taking it to a mechanic. And if I have a broken arm, I'm not taking it to a mechanic, I'm taking it to a surgeon because who they are determines the capacity of what they are able to do. And let me tell you, God is calling our church to some extraordinary things. And we need to be reminded of who we are so that we can be better positioned to step into all that God has for our church. So week one, we said that who we are actually doesn't begin with us, but rather it begins with who God is. When we view him as holy, high and exalted, the sovereign world, the sovereign one, then we begin to lay the foundation of who we are. Last week, we looked at why are we here? What's the greatest purpose of our life and all of us have this one great mission which is to reach people and disciple them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may have a great job, a career and a life but whatever you do as a career or job, it's your undercover suit. Your number one job is to make disciples of all people around you and to bring people into a growing, thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Today in this part three of this segment of this series, I want to talk to you about what matters the most to us. What really matters to us as a church, as a people, what is at the core of who we are? What's the lens through which we view life? Today in this world, far too often we experience the tragedy of natural disasters. One year ago, we went through Harvey and many of you were deeply impacted. Today in Northern California, there are people who are running for their life because of the wildfires that are raging in their city. This week has actually been pretty tough for me and our family because the part of the world that I'm, I was born in called Kerala in South India, especially the town called Rani where both of my parents are from, they were hit hard with monsoon flooding and rain. And it's been a tragic week for millions of people there. Over 400 people have lost their life because of this tragedy of floods and thousands more had to evacuate their homes and be displaced. And I know a lot of our members in our church are from Kerala or some part in India. And I think we should just take a moment and pray for God to rescue and for God to have mercy, all right? Let's just pause for a moment. Father, we think about the part of the world that maybe many of us haven't been to, but we know that you care about your people there. There are great Christ followers. There are great people there. And we ask, oh God, in this moment that you would extend your hand of mercy and rescue Kerala. You would rescue those, God, that, are no, that have no home, that are fighting to find clean water, that are fighting off so many of these diseases now because of these mudslides and flood. And we pray, God, that you will let your church rise up strong and bright. And this would be an occasion that many come to know Christ as Savior because of your work through your church in this part of the world. Use this, God, moment of tragedy and crisis to bring glory to your name. We pray for healing and mercy towards Kerala and other parts of the world, like Northern California, where we are experiencing great tragedies every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for doing that with me. 
whether you were impacted by Harvey or a wildfire or some natural disasters, there is one thing that every natural disaster teaches us. It teaches us what's really important in life. It teaches us what really matters. If you had to leave your home, as many are doing right now in South India, uh, you had to think about what do I take with me? Like what's the most essential thing that I could take with me? With me? And most likely you're not gonna be in your attic picking up all the things you've been hoarding that your wife has been begging you to throw away, taking those things with you. No, you are taking the few essential things because that matters the most to you. We are picking things that matter the most. And in fact, I found an article from San Francisco that talked about the wildfires in Northern Africa, in Northern California last year, and they jotted down a few things that families took when they had minutes, if not seconds, before the barreling flames hit their home. It said that a musician grabbed his violin, a, golf, a pro golfer grabbed his clubs, a bride-to-be remembered her wedding dress, a young mom took diapers and wipes for their children, but nothing for herself. An 82-year-old lady grabbed her walker, and of all things, she remembered her hairbrush, because that is what's so important during these times. Even though she forgot her husband's thyroid medication, but she got her hairbrush. That mattered. A man of 70, uh, I'm sorry, 54 years old, Michael Dornback, he died in the fire because he refused to leave his truck behind. As his family pleaded with him to leave the vehicle, he said, I'm not leaving without my truck. And he lost his life. Tragedies like this, natural disasters, bring to the forefront of our mind what's really important, what matters the most. They clarify the priority of our life. But can I tell you this? It shouldn't take a tragedy for us to really realize what's important. It shouldn't take a moment of crisis or a moment of calamity for us to recognize and realize what is the core of who I am. What matters to me? If I can only hold on to a few things in the world, what is of most importance? You know what we call the things that are most important? We call them our values. Values, our convictions, the things we live by, the filter through which we view life. These are the non-negotiable things of life. You have a value. Your family has a value. As an individual, there's a list of values or a set of values you live by. Whether you realize it or not, stated or unstated, every family has a value. I've met many families in our church who said every year we pick a new value. Whether it be generosity or forgiveness or compassion. And we'll build up an entire year of learning and practicing this value until we've all gotten it. And the next year, we'll pick up another value. And soon we have this amazing culture, not accidentally created, but because we picked values. Values create culture. Thriving organizations and companies have a list of values, non-negotiables. If you go to Chick-fil-A, you can't go today, I'm sorry, it's Sunday. But if you go to Chick-fil-A on a normal day and you say thank you, what do they say back to you? My pleasure. You guys have been to Chick-fil-A way too many times. They say back to you, my pleasure pleasure because that's a value that's transferred down from the CEO all the way down to an employee. Values. Our church has a list of values. We have a list of core tenets we believe we hold on to. It makes us who we are. We have a list of things that say, look, if there's anything worth holding on to, it's this. This shapes who we are. This shapes our budget, our spending, our hiring, our programming. This shapes the core of who we are. But can I tell you, Sugar Creek is not some corporate institution out there. You are Sugar Creek. Our church is made up of people. You are the church. So if these are the values we want to live by as a church, and if this is a culture we want to create as a culture, 
as a church. It takes all of us, me, you, from the youngest to the oldest to say, these things matter to us. These values will become my value. And I will live according to these principles of God's word so that we can create a culture that God finds to be pleasing. That is consistent with the word of God. Maybe you're here today and you are brand new to church. You're brand new to any church. Maybe this is your first time at our church. And as you come to church today, you have all of these preconceived notions of what a church is and is not. You have these images and ideas of what a church should do or not do. A few moments, I want to ask that you put those assumptions aside. And just listen to God's word on how God describes his church. Listen to this beautiful description from Acts 2 of this early church in the first century. Because from this description, we learn what's really at the heart of our church. What our church should be like and what our church is, I believe. We learn what matters to God and what is to be the driving values, the passion of any local church. Sugar Creek by no means is a perfect church. But we are a church that is striving, that is desiring, that is trying with the best we have to live according to these values. So we're going to read from Acts chapter 2 this description of the values that mattered the most to the early church. Starting in verse 42 of Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. What an amazing, beautiful description of the church of Jesus. This is one of those passages that I read and every time I read I pray, God, May this be true about our church. This is one of those scriptures in the New Testament when you read and you ask yourself, if I put my story next to this passage, if I inserted my life into this passage of scripture, would it make any sense? Am I living consistently and faithfully with this passage of scripture? And as a church, we've adapted our core values. As individuals, we must adopt our core values of who we are and how we live life so that it is consistent and faithful to the word of God. So what are the things that are really important to us? What are the values that we hold on to dearly? Out of all the things, what do we hold dearly to? Well, the first thing we learn from this passage of Scripture is this, that we are a people that are devoted to God's Word. We are a people. We are a church. We are individuals. We're husbands and wives, students, teenagers, young adults, single adults. We are a people devoted to God's Word. Word. The first description of this church is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is the teaching of the New Testament. The teaching of how in Christ the Old Testament promises have been fulfilled is the preaching, the teaching of the word of God. Can you imagine what's happening in Acts 2? The Holy Spirit falls powerfully on a group of 120 that were meeting in a small upper room. And immediately Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 are saved and baptized. A small little group of 120 now becomes a a megachurch of 3,000 overnight. 
Imagine the excitement. Imagine the chaos. Imagine all of the things they have to grapple with. How do we minister to thousands of people from all over the world? They're different than us. They're not like us, but they're here and God has brought them to us. Great sense of energy is going on. How do we cater to the families that are here? How do we execute ministry in a way that they are blessed and honors God? But of all the things that were happening in Acts 2, the church had already decided of all of the noise and the hustle and the bustle that's happening right now, we are going to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is the Word of God. That every day we are going to devote ourselves to, we are going to be committed to, we are going to love and faithfully gather around the preaching of the Word of God. Because unless we keep this at the core of who we are, we will not be successful as a church that God has called us to be. And so here at Sugar Creek, our first driving value is simply this, truth matters. Truth matters. Because the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. It is truth for all people. Not for some people, but for all people. It is not subjective to people's interpretation. It is not relative to what we're going through, the culture we're living in. It is absolute unchanging truth for all and every people. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, 17 says it like this. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is the very breath of God. Every word in the scripture has been inspired, given to us by God. So every time we read it, it is like we are in the very breath of God. We are taken in the heartbeat of God. And this is the only word we can read and speak to the author at the same time. The only book we can dive into and know what is on the heart of the author. Paul continues to say, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That this is the inspired, inerrant, powerful word of God. There are some churches that say some of these words are inspired. But we say all of these words are inspired. Every last one of them. There are some churches that will say we use the Bible as a resource. A resource. We view the Bible as a resource. And as a resource, we'll use the Bible to back up what we already believe. This is a reference point. This is a footnote. This is something that backs up our opinion and convictions. It's a resource. But at Sugar Creek, the Bible is not a resource. It is the source. Amen? It is the source. We get our opinion from here. We view life through the perspective of the scriptures. It is not a resource. It's the source. Because all our opinions, all of our affiliations are fashioned and formed by the word of God. At this church, we don't stand above the word of God as if what we had to say was more powerful than the word of God. We don't stand beside the word of God as, well, as if what we had to say was equal to the word of God. We stand under the authority, the guidance, and the leadership of God's word. And we are not trying to change God's word. We are wanting to be changed by the word of God. Here, truth matters. And for you and me, it should matter. For us as a family, as individuals, the word of God, the truth of God should matter more than ever before, it should matter to us now. The second thing that we learn about the early church is that we are a people committed to prayer. We're a people committed to prayer. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, to deep intercession and prayer. If you think about this group of early Christians, they have lost everything. 
Because they followed Christ, they were alienated, ostracized by their family, by their friends. Most of them lost their jobs because they rejected the God of the land. They lost their career. They gave up on their wealth. They forfeited their inheritance by being a Christ follower. The Romans were out to get them. Their religious leaders were out to shut them up. So all they had to hold on to was God. This is a group of people who have lost everything. So every day they were faithful on their knees in prayer, saying, God, we need you. We are desperate for you. We need your provision. We need your guidance. We need your spirit every day to fill us and to lead us because without you, we cannot live a single day. We are desperate for you. There was no other support system but the Holy Spirit of God. And can I tell you, 2,000 years later, we must be just as desperate before God, if not more. We must be found faithful on our knees, praying to God, interceding to God, saying, God, we need you. We can't live life without you. You may have many sources of income and resources, but you can make a lot of money, but you can't make a single breath. We are in desperate need of God. So we've said as a church that the second value that drives who we are is total dependence on God. Absolute, total dependence, not partial, not sometimes but total dependence on God because apart from God, we can do nothing. Somebody said that with me, nothing. That's a good statement to wake up in the morning and say, apart from God today, I can do nothing. I might be smart, I might be this or that, but apart from his grace, we can do nothing. Imagine that you want to go out sailing. And if you're anything like me, you know nothing about sailing. And so you realize, okay, I got to spend some time and become an expert on sailing if I want to take a sailboat out. So for the next two years, you have devoted your life to learn how to sail. You go to the classes, you hear the instructors, instructors, you watch the videos, you read all the manuals that you can on sailing. You shadow other expert sailors on how they sail. And now within two years, you are the greatest expert on how to sail. The time has finally come. You purchase your sailboat. You have painted it beautifully. You've got the right cooler with the right snacks and cliff bar and whatever you want to take on the journey as you coast across the Pacific. And you begin to set the sailboat on a journey. And you hoist the sail. And it dawns on you. If there is no wind in my sail, I'm not going anywhere. I might know everything, I might be an expert, I might have it all together. I might have watched other people sail their boats and as pretty as my boat is, if there is no wind in my sail, I'm not going anywhere. Can I tell you, no matter what we know, what we've experienced, what we have, unless the wind of the Holy Spirit is in our sail, we are not going anywhere, church. Unless the power of God is unleashed through prayer and the presence of God is unleashed through prayer, we can do nothing at all. We are totally dependent on God. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, these words, he says, pray in the spirit on all occasions, on all occasions, not just when you are desperate, not just in your emergency situations, pray in the spirit on all occasions, in good times and bad, when you have a lot, when you don't have a little, when you have nothing. Pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray. We must be people who are totally dependent on God. Are you dependent on the Lord? How do you know that? Measure your prayer life last week. Were you dependent on yourself, on what you can do? Were you desperate before God every day saying, God, I can't live today without you? I can't be who you called me to be. 
without you. Be found dependent on God. Let me tell you, as a church, we don't want to live a life that is explained away by human abilities and talents and resources. We don't want to be a church that is limited to what we can do. We want to be a church of people that can only be defined, only be explained by the power and presence of God. We want the world to know there is no way we could have done what we've done unless the the creator of the universe was at work moving us along. We want to be a church that is totally dependent on God. We have some dreams and aspirations and visions to change the globe, to win people, to reach people who are far from God. But for that to happen, each and every one of us have to live a life committed to prayer because the extent of our abilities won't reach what we want to reach. It is only the power and the presence and the gift of God that enables us to do what God has called us to do. So we are totally dependent on God. Truth matters. Total dependence on God. And the third thing we find in the scripture of the early church is that we are a people who give God our very best. We've got, we give God the best, not the least, not what's convenient. We give God the very best. It's described like this in verse 43. That the early church, it says about them that everyone was filled with awe. When they saw how God was working, when they saw the lives of the early Christians, both inside the church and outside the church, both believers and non-believers were so filled with awe, they marveled at the lives of these Christians. How could it be that they would forsake everything? How could it be that they would follow Jesus at the cost of their life? How could it be that they wouldn't bend to pressure or persecution, but they lived wholeheartedly committed, loyal to the gospel? Let me tell you, if the early Christians were half-hearted and they did things according to convenience and what felt good, and they just did, they just went with the flow, there would be no marvel. There would be no awe. But they live lives with such commitment, with everything poured out, that it was a reason for awe and marvel in the world. So the third core value as a church is simply this, high expectation. High expectation. Because God is worthy of our best, he deserves our greatest commitment. He deserves our greatest commitment. You remember the story of Cain and Abel in the Old Testament? Cain gave God what was convenient, whatever he wanted to give. But Abel gave God his best, his greatest commitment. And God calls us to be an Abel generation because God is worthy of our best. Because he has given himself fully and freely for us in response to what God has given. We give him our greatest commitment. Not what is convenient, but what is our greatest offering. When it comes to church and coming to church and when we show up at church, when it comes to our connect groups, when it comes to our jobs, we give God the greatest at our job. We work hard. We try harder. We must live a life that causes people to wonder, why are they doing all of this so well? When it comes to our homes, as a husband or a wife, as a student, a teenager, we must give it everything we've got. Paul says in Colossians that whatever you do, wherever you are at, wherever you go, work at it with all your heart. With all your God, put your best foot forward every single day as though you were working for the Lord and not for people. You're not serving a human boss, you're serving the Lord. So as a church, if every one of us lives with the sense of I'm going to live excellence out, I'm going to live with a high expectation because no matter where I am or who's watching or who's not, I'm going to give God my greatest commitment. That earns the marvel of so many people around you. High expectations. 
the next thing we learned about this early church that we should be always is that we are a people who genuinely care for others. We genuinely care, love, respect other people. Verse 44 says that now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as they had need. Now the early church was not communist. This is not what this is talking about. But when they saw a crisis, when they saw a need, they did whatever it took to care for people. They carried the boulders, the burdens of one another. When they saw brothers and sisters who were in moments of crisis, they would sell their extra possessions. They would sell extra property they had. And say, hey, let's do whatever it takes to collect a fund and give to those in need because they cared about people that they had never even met. Can I tell you, this is so true of Sugar Creek. This is the heartbeat of our church. We care well. We care genuinely about people. And out of that core value of care, ministries like Second Mile Mission Center and Living Water International and all of these other ministries I can't even count was birthed out of this congregation, this church over the years because we chose to genuinely care for people. Last Christmas I met a lady named Shirley at our Missouri City campus. Shirley was a first-time visitor to our church. And so when Shirley came in, I got to meet her and hear her story. Shirley was there with two of her kids, and she was pregnant with one more child. But she had been living in her car for the last two weeks because her apartment had burned down. She was in such distress, such great crisis. So our staff, we gathered around Shirley and our beautiful children, and we began to pray for her. But it didn't stop there. We said, Shirley, we'll do whatever it takes to care for you. For the next month, we provided her a hotel. The next day, our church members were there delivering food and clothing, helping her find a job. They brought gifts beautifully wrapped and packaged for the children. It was amazing to see our church come alive. And we walked with Shirley all the through until she could be self-sustainable. She began to attend our church, felt the love of our people, and was radically transformed. Why? Not because Shirley deserved it or because we owed her something, but because we genuinely cared for her. Because we saw that she is made in the image of God. She matters to God. Therefore, she should matter, matter to us. So this is one of the core values that we call mutual respect. Mutual respect. Because all people matter to God, they also matter to us. We treat one another with love and respect because they are made in the image of God. God sees them as people he loves and cares for. We will extend love, honor, and respect to people who we may not have even met. We'll love people who are different than us. We care for people that we may not even know fully who they are. Because that's God's goal for our life, that we show the love of Christ no matter where they're from or what kind of a life they live. Let me tell you, no matter who you are, your belief system or lifestyle, we love you. We care about you. We honor and respect you. That's why this is such a unique congregation that our church would have over 95 ethnicities, people from all over the world who find this to be a safe place, a loving place because they feel valued and respected. And I pray that forever we would be a church who genuinely deeply cares for people because we extend respect, honor, and value to people no matter what they've gone through, no matter who they are. 
Paul says it in Philippians like this in chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Then we need to put on the glasses that other people are wearing. Step into their story. Step into their shoes. And see, how can I consider them better than myself? How can we serve? How can we come alongside of them? Show honor and radical love and acceptance. Because that's what changes people. You can't argue people into the kingdom of God. But you can love them. You can respect them. You can honor them. And when we do that together as one church, our communities are drastically transformed by the power of God. Amen. Amen. Mutual respect. The next thing we see in the book of Acts about this early church the values they held on to was that we are a people willing to do whatever it takes to reach others with the gospel. We'll do whatever it takes. We'll go to whatever lengths it requires to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 46 says it like this. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Praising God and enjoying the favor and underline that word, all the people. The early church would meet in the temple because that's where the large Jewish audience would gather. And they wanted to intentionally be present in the public eye of their Jewish peers. Because in those temple settings they could preach the gospel and win Jews to Christ. But that's not all they did. They would also during the week go house to house. Meet in homes, break bread, have fellowship. And I believe they would invite their Roman neighbors, their Gentile neighbors, people who are so different than them. So they would invite them to come and see who they were. Come and hear the message of Christ. Come and be a part of this community. And in doing so, in both going to the temple and in meeting homes, the Bible says that they enjoyed the favor of all people. Not just the Jews and not just the Gentiles, but both Jews and Gentiles, both young and old, both people like them and different than them. They lived in such a way that was deeply connected to their community, connected and relevant to the world they lived in so that all people had a chance to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So this next core value, the fifth core value of our church is this generational relevance. Generational relevance. Because every generation matters to God, we communicate the unchanging message of Christ to the ever-changing world. Because every segment of our population, because every generation, every people group, every ethnicity, every skin color, because everyone matters to God equally. We are committed to sharing the unchanging message of the gospel. We won't compromise the word of God, but we will communicate it however it takes. Whatever is required of us, we will communicate the unchanging word of God to an ever-changing world. That's why every weekend we have environments for both adults here in this room for children across the commons, for youth across the freeway, because we want to provide opportunities for worship and connect, for serve and share for all ages. For the longest time, Sugar Creek had three distinctive worship styles at this campus in Sugar We had the traditions at 8.15, we had the mosaic at 9.30, and this hour was called the edge. For all the cool people with skinny jeans, which I didn't really qualify for, the edge. You know what's so amazing about the three different styles? Pastor Mark would wear three different outfits at every one of the services. Seriously. I mean, he would come in with three different garment bags with three different outfits. At the first service, he would wear a suit and tie. 
Second service, he would wear a dress shirt, sometimes a tie, dress shirt, and slacks. And the third service, he would wear jeans and a shirt. <laughs> Three different services. And we always had this joke that if we ever started a fourth English service, Pastor would be in shorts and a t-shirt, like when he preaches, right? I mean, put on the Hawaiian shirt or something, he'll be just relaxed. We're like, I don't think we're good with three services. <laughs> Why? Why did we offer three distinctive styles of worship and three different outfits that Pastor would wear? Because we're willing to do whatever it takes to connect to a broad audience, no matter how old or where they're from, we are willing to what, do whatever it takes without ever compromising the word of God, without letting go of the convictions of the gospel, we will do whatever it takes to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20. He says, when I was with the Jews, I lived, I dressed, I ate like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who were under the law. Paul is saying this, I willingly crossed over all of these cultural lines, over these preferences of mine, so that I could reach somebody for Christ. You and I both have these same imaginary lines of our preferences, our cultural zones. And there is this little comfort zone that we love to live within. But let me tell you, if you want to reach Christ, if you want to reach people for Christ, if you want to be faithful to the early church, we got to be willing to step outside of those comfort zones, to step outside of our preferences, to even step outside of some of those cultural lines, to eat food you may not want to eat, to connect to a neighbor who might be far from God. To connect with people who are around you, who are different than you, who are from a different part of the world than you, who dress differently than you. To do whatever it takes to bring the gospel to them, to bring Christ to them, to be someone who lives closely with them, a relevant, connected life to them. So that all would hear the goodness of Jesus, that we would become all things to all people, that some would come to Christ, who will do whatever it takes to be relevant to our world. And the last thing we learn about the book, about the church in the book of Acts, is that we are to be a people who are passionate about others coming to know Christ as Savior. We are driven with this insatiable desire, with this burden, with this anguish in our heart for people to come to know Christ as Savior. Verse 47 says that every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Every day, the Lord multiplied. He added to their number those who were being saved. Let me tell you, we may have the greatest music in the world, but all the great music we have won't make a difference if people are not coming to know Christ as Savior. We may have the greatest programming and facilities and connect opportunities and Bible studies and preaching the greatest in the world. We may have it right here at Sugar Creek. But it doesn't matter if people are not coming to know Christ as Savior. So at this church, we know that of all the things we do from our weekend programming to the ministries in our church, to missions across the world and unreached people groups, we are driven by this one passion for people to come to know Christ as Savior. So the central value of why we exist as a church is this eternal impact eternal impact. We seek to make a difference, a forever difference. We strive, we pray, we try at it with everything we have to make an eternal impact in the lives of people. 
to make a forever difference in the lives of those that are around us. Because we do not want our efforts to terminate on this side of eternity. We want it to go on forever. We want it to reach people that we may never meet, to reach generations that are coming after us. And we want heaven to be populated because we lived a life with this core value of saying, use my life, oh God, to make an eternal difference. Use my career, use my family, use my schooling, my education, use everything that I have to make an eternal impact in the lives of people. If you think about all these values, the first five that I mentioned, we are responsible for. We are responsible for. But this last one, God is responsible for. He does the work in saving people. The Lord added to their work. We are responsible to stay committed and devoted to the word of God. We are responsible to being totally dependent on him. We are responsible for being mutually respectful and loving to each other, to be relevant to our world, to have high expectation and to do things with excellence. That's our call. We are going to do those things. And when we do all of those things, God brings an eternal reward through our work. He does something we could have never done. When we are faithful to the call of God to be the church that he's called us to be, to be the individuals that he has called us to be, God breathes on us his Holy Spirit. And we see an amazing multiplication, not just addition, but a multiplication of people coming to know Christ all around the world. And we see God bringing the lost home, healing the broken, restoring identity and dignity to those who were far from him. I love how 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 and 7 puts it. Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. And may God continue to make it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything because it's not about the name of a church. It's not about us, but only God who makes things grow. And I pray that as we live faithfully to these values, God will make things grow. God would increase the fruit of our labor, and we will see in our lifetime, in our day and time, a great revival because we are faithful to the values he calls us to live by, and we create a culture where God breathes and causes all things to grow. There's a recent story that I think brings all of these values together. There are members of our church who every week go to the Bissonette and Beltway 8 area. This is a local area just a few miles from our church here. But it's a hub of trafficking and drug abuse and exploitation. Terrible things happen on Bissonnette Street. But people have committed from this church to go every week to be a consistent presence of God on Bissonnette. What I love about this group is that it's a mixed group of young and old, black, white, Asian, Hispanic. It's a mixed group of people who have decided we will step across every cultural line and every preference of ours to reach people who were far from God. They learn an entirely new language called hip-hop to reach people on Bissonnette because they have this value of generational relevance. We'll do whatever it takes to reach people. Before they set out to go to Bissonnette, they bow their knees and pray to God, God, use us to make a difference. Use our words, use our actions to make an eternal difference because they are totally dependent on God, not on their ability, but on God. And every time they're out there, they give it all they've got. They're tired because they do this every week, week in and week out. But they have a high expectation that says, we will give God our best. We will love people well. We'll serve them well. And when they're out there 
They preach the gospel unapologetically. They proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. They say to them, we're here to pray with you. We're here to share Christ with you because truth matters to them. Truth matters to them. But they just don't stop at prayer. They begin to meet the tangible needs of those around them. They begin to take products that they need. These women, these men who are in slavery need. So just a few weeks ago, they took 200 boxes of fresh produce and 360 cheeseburgers. Sounds pretty awesome. Because they say, we mutually respect you, we value you, we find honor in you, we want to show you love and care. And we'll do whatever it takes to share with you the good news of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you that there are men and women who are coming to know Christ every week on Bissonette Street. There are people who are being rescued from human trafficking and slavery. There are men who are giving up addiction and drug abuse and selling drugs and giving their lives to Christ. And three weeks ago, I think it was in this service, a young man by the name of Ike was baptized because of this ministry right here in our church. Ike and his two young men are being discipled by our church. They are now picking up their life and growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. But not only that, Ike is being discipled and empowered to reach his friends, to reach his neighbors to reach his network. And in fact, he's in this service right now. So let's give it up for the eternal impact that our church is having on men and women like Ike. Because this is what we are about. This is our value. This is what makes us us. This is what makes you and I the church of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, as every one of us says, I'm willing to take the we and make it about me. This is not just going to be the values of one church. This is going to be my value. I'm going to personalize this. I'm going to be committed to the word of God. I'm going to be faithful to the prayer and total dependence on God. I will do whatever it takes for me to stay relevant to my neighbors. I will cross every barrier, every preference line to reach people who are far from God. I will live with excellence and I will be committed to eternal impact. I will use my life for the glory of God. That's all that matters. When we together make that kind of a commitment to dive deeper into who we are, it's unbelievable what God can do through us. And the world would experience the power and presence of God like it's never had before. Would you bow your heads with me? I don't know where you are in your story. Maybe you're here and you're feeling lost and you're feeling broken. There's hope for you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 2,000 years ago, stepped into your shoes. He walked on this earth and he gave us life for you because he loved you. Not because we deserved it or could have earned it, but simply because he loved you. And today in this service, I want to invite you, if you don't know Jesus as Savior, give him your life. Make him the boss of who you are and say, God, will you give me new life? And he will. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you today. It's amazing that we get to be a part of this. That we, the church of God, we are the move of God. We are the revival in the world that causes eternal life change. So now as one church, God, we bow our hearts and we say, God, continue to use us. Don't pass us by. May these values, may these be our passions. May we as individuals and families create a culture here that looks like the book of Acts, that looks like the early church giving their lives up for the cause of Christ. We thank you that you invite us to be a part of this. And our answer is yes. If there's anyone under the sound of my voice that is far from God today, may today be the day that they come to know Christ as Savior.
This is what this is all about. May they join our church and say, I want to live by these values. I want my life to count. Help us, oh God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.